Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. Okay, we have two readings this morning. The first is from Isaiah chapter 58, verses 6 to 11, and I am reading from the New International Version. So that's Isaiah 58, verses 6 to 11. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke? To set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry, and satisfy satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness." and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. And our second reading comes from the New Testament. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 7 to 19. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Thanks, Naomi. Uh, That's great. Uh, Brothers and sisters, please, uh, we're going to be dancing around all over the scriptures this morning, uh, so you sort of don't need to sort of land in any particular part of the Bible, but um, if you have a gadget, if you want to take notes, that would be a really good thing to do. As we continue our series uh, called God and Money, How to Handle Money in Your Heart and with Your Hands, Uh, we are... Uh, at week two of this particular series. Before we get into that, um, just a couple of things to say as we, um, just to share with you. One is, um, most likely at some stage during my Bible talk this morning, uh, I'm going to talk a bit about John's Gospel and I encourage you to read John's Gospel. And so I just want to remind you that up on the back table, we've got heaps of copies of John's Gospel. Um, And so if you are unfamiliar with John's Gospel, it's in your Bible, if you have a Bible already, by the way. Uh, This is just sort of taken out of the Bible. Uh, But these are copies of John's Gospel, which um, I just want to encourage you to remind you, we've got copies of these and Mark all over the place. Uh, So if you want to read the Gospel, uh, we've got them and they're utterly free. Um, As we do gear up for Christmas, Uh, It's an opportunity for many of us um, as we talk about Christmas and we talk about giving and we talk about spending, all those sorts of things. It's an opportunity for us to, as believers in the Lord Jesus, to help other people, remind other people of who is at the centre of Christmas, uh, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, And so there are potentially opportunities for all of us to be talking about Jesus, particularly at this time. Uh, There are heaps of resources out there to help us uh, to do that uh, and heaps of resources we can put into the hands of our friends and our families and our colleagues at work. Um, One great resource is this one. It's brand new. It's by Rebecca McLaughlin and it's called Is Christmas Unbelievable? Um, This is an excellent book. Many of us have read Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin, so same author. Uh, In this really short little book or tract, I guess, uh, Rebecca um, unpacks four questions uh, that we all should ask about Christmas and perhaps people you know are asking about Christmas. Uh, The four questions are, was Jesus even a real person? Can we take the Bible seriously? How can you believe in a virgin birth? And why does it even matter? Um, Four great questions, 
four excellent answers. Uh, so these are free. We've got a bunch of copies up on the back table. These are free for you to take, uh, to read for yourself, and then to get into the hands of those you know and love uh, to present and introduce them to Jesus this Christmas. So um, free, like everything on the back table, grab these, take them, get them out, um, and be prayerful as you do that. That'd be a good thing to do. Um, as we start this morning, um, as I often do now, um, I'm going to get you to talk to the person next to you, and here it is. As we get going this morning, I want you to think about five adjectives you'd use to describe yourself and share them with the person next to you. Five adjectives. Or ask the person next to you, what are five adjectives you use to describe? You know what an adjective is? Grammar is good for you, you know? Um, Go for it. Five words you'd use to describe yourself or describe the other person next to you. Go for it. See what you come up with. Go. All right. Let's let's get into it, shall we? Um. Some of you know that uh, before I was before I was sort of in full time gospel ministry, I was a physiotherapist um, and. some people would nickname, like, you know, some, people, some physios would call themselves a physical terrorist um, in that they like to inflict pain on people. Um, and uh, I can't physically inflict pain on people anymore, so my way of inflicting pain on people is to ask you questions like that and have you discuss them with each other. Um, but uh, it might make sense later as we go through. We are in week two of this little series on money, the... Um, not really an Advent series, Advent series, um, as we gear up for Christmas. Um, last week uh, we started the series, this is, is week two. Um, we're doing this not because there's a, like a particular drive at the moment for money, um, you know, where um, we've got issues, not at all actually, very much the opposite. Um, Last week, I suggested that the reason we're doing this series is for four particular reasons. Uh, one is it's just really important, money is really important. Um, If your source of money dried up this afternoon, it would really impact on the things you could do or couldn't do in this coming week. It's just a reality. Money is important. It's part of our lives. Um, God, secondly, has a lot to say about money, uh, both the blessings of money and also the dangers of money and wealth. Uh, Thirdly, I suggested last week that maybe for some of us, including myself, uh, money could be just a bit of a spiritual blind spot for some of us. Um, I don't know, when was the last time you sat down with someone for a coffee and they said to you, I just wanted to let you know, this week I've, I feel like I've just been really greedy. Um, it's never happened to me, um, nor have I ever said it myself, I think, to be honest. So um, it could be a spiritual blind spot for some of us. And fourthly, uh, we are approaching Christmas. I don't know if you've realised that. Um, it's almost the end of November, Christmas trees and decorations and even carols are playing. And uh, the reality is that this is a time where we spend money, um, perhaps more than we do normally. Um, and sometimes, hopefully, for good reasons, to reflect the great news of the gospel, which is God gave us the greatest gift ever. Uh, But Australians last year, 2020, uh, we spent, I think it was about $11 billion on gifts and Christmas last year. So it's just a reality. We spend at this time. And so it's good to think about how we spend the money, the power that we have. Rather than looking at sort of every single Bible passage in the Bible or verse in the Bible that alludes to or speaks about money, we're just sort of drawing together some big themes of Scripture to help us understand how we ought to handle money in our hearts and with our hands. Um, last week we considered that a right un- how a right understanding of God and power shapes how we spend our money, uh, which is a form of power. Um, this week we turn to how we spend and what we love. Um, what we love and how that shapes how we spend. Um, I'm going to pray and then we'll get into it. Heavenly Father uh, and Lord of all, we ask that today uh, you would open the eyes of our hearts to see the wonderful truths in your word. We also ask that you would open our hands in light of what you've done for us to serve you, one another, and the world, this world, uh, with all that we have. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Last week, if you were here, I spoke uh, as one powerful person to other powerful people. Um, I don't know if you know, I remember I waved around a $20 note last week. That went by about 2 p.m. 
that afternoon. That's what happens to money, isn't it? It just sort of is there one minute and then it's gone. Um, Particularly when I'm going home with two small boys um, who are hungry, um, that was was gone. Um, Today I want us to recognise the limits of our power. Um, We who have cash and credit, we have power. It's a flexible way of getting stuff done. It's a flexible way of getting work done for us. But there are limits to the power that we have. We don't have infinite amounts of money. And so we need to think a little bit about how we spend it. There are so many demands, so many responsibilities that we have. How do we spend the power, the money that each one of us has, rightly? When our liquid power is limited, when our money is limited, how do we choose how to spend it? Now, on the one hand, right, it's, it's kind of simple, isn't it? It's kind of, it makes, it's, it's obvious. You have the basics of life, right? So you've got grocery bills, electricity bills, you've got mobile phone bills, you've got, you know, internet bills, there's paying the rent, there's servicing your mortgage and things like that um, because, you know, we've got to have somewhere to live. Uh, there's the money that you need to spend on transport, on cars or Ubers or buses or scooters, I don't know, whatever it is. And there's insurance and there's registration and all that sort of stuff. That's just the basics of life. And then there's the pleasures of life, right? So we've got money, how we spend our money. We we eat out, we go to the movies, we have a gym membership, all those other extracurricular activities. So we've got basics of life. We've got like the pleasurey things of life. And then we've got like the good causes that we give to. You know, so like the phone call you get for thanking you. Uh, for that generous donation that you gave to help refugees. And then the follow-up question, any chance you could just give a little bit more because the problem has just increased? Or the letter with your receipt from the mission organisation which starts with a story of how a life has been transformed by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in Africa and then the final paragraph suggesting how wonderful it would be if that could happen to more lives for more people to experience liberation and the call to give more generously. Money is power, and it's true that we are powerful people because we have it. We recognised last week that it's all God's ultimately, but there are so many possibilities of what we could do with the money that we have. So many possibilities. There are so many possibilities, I reckon, that it's easy to kind of feel paralysed as to know what to do. There are so many good causes, so many ways you could spend the money that God has given you. God has entrusted us with power, with money, for us not to use for our own gain, but for his purposes. So what does that mean? I mean, does it mean that we should sell the family car in order to sponsor more children through compassion? Is paying your electricity or your gas or your mobile phone bill a matter of godliness? Should we pour all of our money only into supporting mission work that explicitly tells people about the good news of Jesus and not worry about supporting other mission work that provides for earthly needs? Is the tithe a fancy Christianese way of saying giving 10% of your income, is that really all that the Bible says about how we spend? In fact, does the Bible even call Christians to give a tithe? How do you choose? How do you determine your cash values? The key is, the key is to get your love right. Again, rather than look at every Bible passage about money, I want us to think together this morning about the love of God and how that shapes how we spend our money. Two things this morning if you're a note taker. The first thing means the love of God means that he is the perfect provider. God is the perfect provider. That has implications for us. And second thing is God's love is disturbingly generous. They're the two things we're looking at this morning. God is the perfect provider that has implications for us. God's, secondly, God's love is disturbingly generous and that has implications for us as his people. So firstly, God's love means he is the perfect provider for those who he is 
bound to. He is the perfect provider. First thing we need to see is that the provision of God is the first thing we need to see is not so much how God provides for us, but we need to think about how God relates to himself, right? So here's some Trinitarian theology coming your way early on a Sunday morning. Hang on to your hats. Um, We often, I don't think, stop to think about God relating to himself as the Trinity, the triunity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now that's the starting point for us to see what a loving relationship is. It can be hard for us to get our heads around how God can be one and three, but perhaps the best way to grasp it, that God is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, is to recognize that they are so committed to loving each other. They are bound to each other so much so that they actually live in each other. They are so other person-centered that they actually dwell and live in each other. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the language we encounter in John chapter 14, verse 10. Listen to this. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Jesus speaks about how they are so committed to each other that they are in each other. What makes them mutually indwell is that they are so completely other person-centered in their love. They are completely committed, sold out to providing what's best for each other. So John chapter 3, verse 35, the father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. John 5, 20, the father loves the son and shows him all he does. John 5, 30, flipping it around, by myself, Jesus says, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear and my judgment is just for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Over and over and over and over again in John's gospel, we see that God, the father and the son, act to provide what's good for each other. They love each other so much, they're so bound to each other that it reinforces their togetherness. The three are one. As you read through John's Gospel, again, I encourage you to read John's Gospel if you haven't read it before, it's wonderful. You actually discover that even when you get to the cross, the cross is really a moment of uniting love. Even as God himself is torn apart for the salvation of the world, it's a moment of uniting love as the Father and as the Son both seek to provide glory for each other. That's what happens at Calvary. And what's remarkable is that God doesn't keep it to himself, his love. He invites people like you and me into that bond. So John 17 verse 11, it's on the screen. Jesus prays for his disciples. He prays for you and for me. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. God invites us into his own love relationship. He says in John 17 verse 26, I have made known to them, known, I've made you known to them, And I will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. See, God is the perfect provider. He is bound within himself. He cares and he loves. And he invites people like you and me into that same love. And so he will love with the same commitment those he is bound to. God chooses to commit himself to certain people. He promises to care for his children. He makes a promise to Abraham and he keeps it. Psalm 111 verse 5, he provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. Covenant is just a fancy Bible word for contract or deal. He keeps his covenant. He keeps his promises to those he's bound himself to. So God will provide food. He meets his obligations. In Hebrews chapter 12, he provides what's best for his people. He disciplines like a father disciplines his legitimate children. 
Yeah, we will keep suffering because we live in a broken and sinful world. And yes, we'll suffer because we make stupid decisions and have to learn from those stupid decisions. Yes, we'll suffer though because we belong to Jesus in a world that crucified him. But in and through it all, God is not walking away and God continues to provide for his children, those he's bound himself to. So the love of God is nothing less than providing what is best for those he's obliged to. Now, I don't know, maybe that all sounds a bit abstract. Maybe you're going, Jacko, you've been reading too many Trinitarian theological books lately, clearly. What's that got to do with our cash? What's all this got to do with our money? Your purse, your wallet, your credit cards, your Bitcoin. How does it help us prioritize? How does knowing this about God, that he provides for those he is bound to, how does that shape how we spend our money? Well, we need to be providers too. We need to spend on those we are bound to. Now, I suspect we do this Intuitively, This is the implication or the application of this reality of God. I think we do this intuitively. We're kind of used to it, right? You get a bill and you pay it. Is that right? Am I on the same page? You get a bill and you pay it? But there's actually a reason behind it, right? It's actually an aspect of our godliness. You see, we were made in the image of God, Genesis chapter one. We are made in his image. Our differences as male and female reflect his differences as three persons. Our unity as one humanity reflects his unity as being one God. We are bound to each other as human beings in one sense. And so we have an obligation to other people made in God's image. And yet there are closer bindings, right, that God has created. So the Bible recognizes varying degrees of loyalty in relationships. So in Genesis chapter two, right, when someone gets married, what do they do? They leave their parents and they are bound to someone different. That's kind of like what Eloise is about to do, right? She is gonna cleave from her parents and be bound to Ben, wife and husband, a higher calling of loyalty. We need to be providers according to the level of binding we have. So we provide first and foremost for our family. First Timothy chapter five, verse eight, the Christian who won't provide for his or her own family is actually, Paul says, worse than an unbeliever. It's godly to prioritize the needs of your family when it comes to spending. I don't remember in Mark chapter seven, um, this kind of falsely pious dude comes up to Jesus and says, oh, no, 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 I can't care for my parents, Lord Jesus, because I'm giving all of my money to God. And Jesus basically says, no, you give to God by caring for them. Give to them. It's right and godly to be a provider. Of course, we need to be honest with ourselves about what loving provision for our family looks like, not just going over the top, I guess. Um, there was a, na- a man named Andrew Carnegie. He was a famous industrialist and philanthropist um, who Forbes magazine estimated if you updated his wealth from back then to today, he'd be worth something like $300 billion. Like, give or take a few billion, right? A, a wealthy man. He gave this warning about leaving an inheritance to his children. Quote, the almighty dollar bequeathed to a child is an almighty curse. No man has the right to handicap his son with such a burden as great wealth. Yes, we are to provide for our families, but we need to be careful and honest about what provision actually is. We're not just bound to our families, right? We're bound to the needs of fellow believers, other Christians. So Galatians chapter 6, verse 10 reminds us, do good to all especially those who belong to the household of faith. We've got to care for Christians locally and around the world. And there are many Christians whom we're bound to around the world whom we could be generous to. We're bound to our families. We're bound to fellow believers. We're also bound to the state. We're bound to the government. 
You know, being a Christian doesn't give us freedom to become radical separatists and run our own little political system and do things our own way, no. Romans chapter 13 calls us to submit to governments, that God has given these governments and we are to submit to them. Um, we follow the principle, chapter, Romans chapter 13 verse seven. Paul says, give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. The point is that we Christians pay taxes not because if we don't, we might get caught, No, we pay taxes willingly. We choose to do it. We pay the right amount and we're careful to watch that a spirit in our hearts doesn't grow that actually wants to find every single loophole and dodge our obligations. We pay taxes, provide revenue, give honour and respect willingly. And we're bound to those who work for us, employees, and to pay them properly. Proverbs 11.1, 1, God hates the use of dishonest scales. That is, God hates it when we try to undervalue the work of others and try to cut them down, get a better deal for ourselves. So paying your electricity bill, your mobile phone bill, paying your credit card bill is not only sensible, it's actually a matter of godliness. Again, 1 Timothy 5, the reason you pay for elders of a church, people like me, is not because I do a greater work than anyone else here. It's it's not because it's a compulsory thing, but it's just like if you had an ox and that ox was doing work for you in the field, you'd feed the ox, right? I'm your ox. And I get hungry. No. It's a simple principle. You meet obligations. You meet your obligations to those you're bound to. How do you spend? How do you determine your cash values? Look at the love of God, who is a great provider, who's a great provider to those he's bound himself to and make sure your cash commitments meet it. I mean, just stop for a moment. Are you a responsible provider for your family's needs? Or are you simply providing for their luxuries? Do you seek to avoid paying legitimate tax or do you pay it willingly? Do you pay your bills on time? Do you pay your employees, if that's your situation, what they're worth? Are you giving to church to pay for those who teach and pastor you? I'll leave those questions with you to think about. As you consider those demands of love, a love that provides, with it I want you to hold on to our second point this morning, the disturbing generosity of God. I say God's generosity is disturbing because it is really unhinged and unbalanced. You see, when God chooses to love, he actually kind of destroys or turns upside down the normal way that we work, right? So I think lots of our society operates on what they call a, prid, a, prig, um, a quid pro quo, I'll get that eventually, quid pro quo system, right? So I invite you around for a meal at my house and then a couple of weeks later you invite me back, right? That's how, it sort of, that's how we work, that's how we work. Really nice and we're really loving to each other and it's just we just exchange curries and things like that. God doesn't work that way. I say it's disturbing because of the ridiculous lengths that God goes to for love. How much he is willing to hurt himself and put himself out there for love. I say it's disturbing because I suspect that as a church community here at North Adelaide, that this aspect of God's love is more challenging to us. I suspect we're naturally better at providing, but we're not naturally good at being generous in the disturbing way that God is generous. Because how does God love? Well, he loves the needy. He's generous to the needy. Psalm 68, five on the screen, he's a father to the fatherless. He's a defender of the widows. 
Jeremiah 49, 11, God says, leave your orphans, I'll protect them. Your widows, they too can trust me. Do you get it? God is somebody who actually cares for those who can't cry for justice but can only cry out for mercy. Our tendency is that we give something from our loose change to the rough sleeper you see in the city or the rough sleeper you come across down on O'Connell Street. But Jesus in Luke chapter 14 invites the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind and the vulnerable to become honoured guests at an exclusive party. And even more disturbing, he doesn't just love the needy, he loves his enemies. You see, God's kingdom is not made up of the respectable. The Bible describes how people were before they became members of the kingdom of God. Have you come across some of these phrases about how God describes what you and I were like before he, by his grace, dragged us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son he loves and the kingdom of light? Here's a few different descriptions of what we were called before we became sons of the most high. One, former sons, formerly sons of the devil. Two, former enemies of God. Three, former persecutors of the righteous. Four, former whoring adulteresses and haters of God and man. Can I encourage you, by the way, at Christmas time, if you take one of these and you give it to one of your friends, family or colleagues, don't introduce it with those four phrases, right? Just straight up, maybe not. Oh, excuse me, former son of the devil. That probably wouldn't go down very well. But anyway, this, these the, this, is what God, I mean, God, this is what God's word says. Do you want to love people like this? God does. We keep our distance and yet God is disturbingly generous to them. He gives of his own wealth for such people. When Jesus was on the cross, while nails were being driven into his hands, whilst insults and mockery were flying at him from every left, right and centre, what does he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Because what was happening on the cross? 2 Corinthians 5 verse 19, it was that God at that very moment was reconciling the world back to himself these enemies, and not counting their sins against them. How is that going to shape how you spend your money? When you flash around your credit card, when you do some transferring on NetBank, this generous love of God, how is it going to shape how we spend? Well, here's a bunch of implications. First, being generous is to be spiritually healthy. To be generous is actually a sign of spiritual health. If you're stingy, you're sick. That's what we read in Isaiah 58, our first reading this morning. God approves those who spend of themselves on behalf of the poor. A second reading, 1 Timothy 6, generosity is your protection, Paul says, you rich person, me, rich person, from trusting in the instability of wealth. In light of God's generosity, can you see that asking the question of tithing, like giving 10%, it's just distracting, isn't it? A bit irrelevant. Generosity is the key. Brothers and sisters, as I regularly do, I encourage you to come to church weekly. I encourage you to read your Bible every day. It's a good thing. I reckon it's a healthy thing to pray in the morning and pray at the end of the day. All those things will help you keep trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. They will be good for your soul, but generosity is just as important at guarding your soul. Um, John Wesley said, I quote, money never stays with me. It would burn me if it did. I throw it out of my hands as soon as possible, lest it should find its way into my heart. And Wesley, if you know him, Wesley's life ambition was to give so generously that when he died, he left nothing behind. 
As far as we know, we achieve that goal. If we're going to be spiritually healthy, we ought to be generous. Second implication of God's disturbing generosity, we need to be generous to those in need, not just friends and family. We must be generous to those in need, not less lavish with our friends and family. Proverbs 19, verse 17, he who is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he will reward him for what he has done. James chapter one, what is the religion that God approves of and finds acceptable and pure? It's looking after orphans and widows in their distress. A poor matter especially poor Christians, and worldwide there are millions of them. You know, I think we're too quick often in church circles to quote, you know, 1 Corinthians 16 and 2 Corinthians, you know, 8 and 9 as a call to support the local church work. You know, God loves a cheerful giver, so cheerfully give to City Light Church, North Adelaide, all that sort of stuff. But first and foremost, those passages, 1 Corinthians 16, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, they are called to, it's a call to support poor Christians. I've said this before, right? What Paul was doing and describing in those chapters, particularly in 2 Corinthians, is Paul was organizing this five-year-long mega financial collection for the poor and the starving and the challenged Christians back in Jerusalem. He invited churches all over the Mediterranean world to dig deep into their pockets and to give. It was a massive project. Some people say it was the first sort of global aid project ever established in the world by Paul. Why? Because because poor Christians matter. The principle in 2 Corinthians 8, we can't go there in detail, is not that you, know, you and I should swap places with them, you know, like exchange, I'll go over there, you come over here. That's not what Paul's saying. Rather, from our plenty, we supply their need. That in some sense, there'd be a greater equality between us and them. I like church history. I like history in general. Um, anyone heard of Oliver Cromwell? Yeah, Oliver Cromwell. He was Lord Protector of England. Um, a couple of hundred century, uh, a couple of centuries ago. Um, I don't know if you knew this, but England was a republic for about 20 years around Oliver Cromwell's time. Um, you know, there's still time, you know, for England to do that again. No. Um, When Oliver Cromwell was in charge, there was a financial crisis across the UK. Um, There was no silver available. There was no way to mint any more coins. It was impossible. So he sent his treasurer out to explore the nation, um, to find out where the the silver was. And the treasurer came back and said, hey, there's, there's plenty of silver out there. The trouble is it's just in all the cathedrals and in all these statues of the saints. If you know Oliver Cromwell well, you won't be surprised by his solution. He said, we will melt down the saints and put them into circulation. Melt down the saints and put them into circulation. And it's been observed that we face the same problem now, don't we? For Cromwell, the problem wasn't that, there, you know, wasn't that there wasn't enough silver. It's just that it was contained in the saints, and so it wasn't readily available. And today, saints, by the way, is just a fancy word for Christians, followers of Jesus. We've got the silver. The challenge is to melt it down and put it into circulation. How readily... Will we part with it generously for the poor? I mean, if in all honesties you had to pick five adjectives to describe yourself, five. See, there was a reason behind that, right? What five would you pick? If we had to choose five adjectives to describe City Light Church North Adelaide, Would generosity be on the list? 
To put it another way, right, if the advertiser or in daily came round and did an editorial on our church, do you reckon that the word generosity would make it into the report? Keep thinking about that. Two more implications to go. Um, Thirdly, in light of God's disturbing generosity, give purposely to reconcile enemies back to God. We give purposely to reconcile enemies back to ourselves and back to God. That's what our money is for. That's how we choose to spend. First Peter chapter three has this principle. When someone insults you, what do you do? You bless them. That's how you repay them. Now to spend money on ambitions that are less than seeing a rebellious world and rebellious people brought back to God is to be seriously out of step with the God who ripped himself apart for that very purpose. What it looks like can be quite simple, can be quite small, can be really local, can be inviting friends you know, with kids to, to things where they can hear about the Lord Jesus Christ. So a few years ago, I was involved in a, a thing called Ambassador's Soccer, a, a way of blending the world game with the global message of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was involved in that, and as a result, Adele and I, we knew a bunch of families who had a bunch of kids, and we just said, look, we'll pay for them to come. We'll cover their registration. They can come along. The investment in seeing kids and parents and people who've drifted from God come back to him. Money spent to reconcile. But then it builds out. It does mean that we give generously as God's people to see local people here in North Adelaide and in the inner north across Adelaide come to know Jesus. There's someone who recently to our church gave us a really large amount of money so we could bring someone on board to help us to do that better. Another paid person. It means that we do give generously to our friends, Adele and I, to our friends Mike and Karen, who are educating local pastors and Bible teachers in South Africa so that they might train up men and women locally in South Africa to reach many with the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in order to, we, we ought to be spending our money in other ways to see other people reconcile to the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, it even means buying lunch for your colleague at work who stabbed you in the back. Might even mean buying a six pack of furphy for your neighbor who put holes in your tree so that it would die so they might get a better view. So you can show love. So you can repay their insult with blessing and you can begin the process of seeing people reconcile back to you and hopefully reconcile to the Lord Jesus. By the way, buying a six pack of furphy or taking your colleague who insulted you out for lunch is not expensive, it's just painful. I've got a story I could tell you about that. Many of you know that we're renovating our house right now and I'm not really having the best of time with my builder. He's annoying me. And as I'm preparing this sermon and thinking about this, I'm actually thinking maybe I'm gonna to have to take him out for lunch. I mean, I don't wanna be someone who just barks stuff up the front and says, you go and do that. Hold me accountable to that, brothers and sisters. It's not expensive, just painful. I've heard many people say over the years, Simon, I want to grow a bigger heart for missions. I always respond, Jesus tells you how to get that. Put your money in, your mission, in missions and put your money in your church and in the poor and your heart will follow. Fourthly, in light of God's disturbing generosity towards us, we're called to give generously to the point that it hurts. The disturbing love of God means that we are generous to the point that it hurts. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become 
rich. When God was generous to his enemies, he didn't use spare change. He gave the treasure of his son and it hurt him. I want to ask you again, does that characterise you? Does that characterise our church? Are we generous to the point where it hurts or do we just give from skimming off the top of our surplus so we don't even actually notice it? I mean, how would the advertiser, how would In Daily describe us? You know, if there was a trip advisor equivalent for churches, you know, I don't know, church advisor, could we call it that? What what reviews would we get? I want you to think about that as you listen to this description from from a non-Christian writer back in the second century AD. This is talking about some Christians. Second century, non-Christian writer talking about Christians. Quote, If they hear that any of their number is imprisoned or oppressed for the name of their Messiah, all of them provide for his needs. And if there is among them a man who is poor or needy and they have not an abundance of necessities, they fast two or three days that they may supply the needy with their necessary food. That was Lucian of Samosata. He was a pagan, hated Christians. He made fun of them. He thought they were foolish for supporting people they didn't even know. He said this, at their own expense, they lavish their all because the poor wretches have convinced themselves that they are gonna be immortal and live for all time, end of quote. He noticed, right, that these Christians were so convinced that they were gonna be with the Lord forever in the new creation that they would waste their cash caring for people. They didn't even know. Idiots, foolish, stupid. I I don't think the advertiser would write that about us. I don't think we'd receive that kind of review on church advisor or trip advisor. Do you? We need to take seriously the challenge of 2 Corinthians 8, verse 7. See that you also excel in the grace of giving. As a church, I think we aim to excel in heaps of areas. I think we aim to excel with our welcoming. I think we seek to excel with our music. I think we seek to excel with our coffee. Notice that Jim is now doing latte art. It's very great. There you go, there he is. We, we, we seek to be excellent. I think it'd be excellent if we were excellent at generosity for one another, for our local community, flowing from the disturbing generosity of God. So brothers and sisters, this week, just like every week, you'll have to make some financial decisions. I want you to hold on to the fact that as you make those transactions this week, it's not only an exertion of power, but it's also an opportunity to love. May our cash values show that we are more shaped by the love of God than we are shaped by the world. Let's pray. Let's pray. give you a moment in the perhaps in the quietness of your own heart to pull together some of the things you've heard this morning and maybe take a moment to examine think back how you have yourself 
handled money in your heart and with your hands and ask the Lord to help you as you face this new week to do that in light of God's disturbing generosity. I'll give you a minute, then I'll pray. In light of the cross, God's disturbing love shown to a watching world. Paul writes to those who have come to know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and exhorts them and us in this way. See that you also excel in the grace of giving. Heavenly Father, Father, we ask this morning by your spirit you would make us more like you, less like ourselves. Make us more like Jesus. Help us to spend the power that you've entrusted to us, our money in this event, in a way that is shaped by your disturbing love. Change our hearts. Open our hands for your glory, our spiritual health, and the good of those whom we know and even those we don't. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.